welcome back to the Digigods podcast on uh, the week of Labor Day in the United States. We cannot keep Mark on this show. Uh, Tim, thank you for sitting in again. Yeah, yeah. What did he do to himself? Did he hurt himself? He's sick. <laughs> he is he is sick and unable to speak. Mark uh, does not take days off from work, and Mark missed almost an entire week of work because he uh, he cannot he has no voice. If Mark if Mark if Mark missed work, then he is in fact sick. Not yes, just, he not just love sick. That is true. So uh, between his vacation and his rekindled romance and all, everything else that has uh, taken him out of the loop lately. He is on top of everything else sick. So we, on his behalf, we uh, apologize. We're going to give him uh, a little, about a week or so to try and get his, uh, his constitution back to where it needs to be. And uh, in the meanwhile, we, uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, is summer season officially over now with Labor Day? Yes, literally today watching U.S. Open. I actually have US, the U.S. Open on in the background <laughs> right now. I'm that much of an addict for tennis. Yeah, Tim, uh, t- Tim, Tim knows tennis better than he knows <laughs> movies, and that's saying something. That is oh, really saying something. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the people often don't realize Labor Day is the worst movie-going weekend of the year. Yeah. It is the worst. That's why all the junk always gets released on on Labor Day weekend because that's the only time they can get screens. Mm. Everything else evacuates movie screens, and uh, Labor Day is is the uh, the dumping ground of the year. Even though January and you know is, is typically that, that considered January February yeah. period can be can be pretty rough too. We've got a few holdover uh, horror films. Uh, yeah, Labor Day it's sort of hanging around a little bit. Uh, Suicide Suicide Squad is still, still hanging, hanging around, around and Don't Breathe is doing its thing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we're gonna we're gonna give you hopefully something to uh, pay attention to on Blu-ray and DVD. And uh, Tim, we got m- some music. Mark usually yes. hits the music for us, so I'll let I'll let you uh, l- give us the the music titles of the week. Well, good. Yeah, I'm glad you l- let me uh, do these. The first one, uh, whatever happened, Miss Simone. This, of course, was the Liz Garbus. Uh, documentary that came out last year. This is the CD Blu-ray set uh, out now. First of all, the film itself, Whatever Happened, Miss Simone. Absolutely extraordinary, sort of astounding documentary that dives into the life of... It's such an amazing life and a movie that really does justice to it. Yeah, you know, a a complicated person in in many ways, and and the movie does try to speak to all of that. The the, the CD that comes with this includes all of your, you know, I loves you, Porgy, and I put a spell on you, and Mississippi Goddamn, and all of that. So this is a, you know, this is an important... Piece. I, th- I had not realized how many awards, uh, both the film and some of this music, oh, the yeah. film was nominated for. The, uh, Germany, the, the the Golden Bear, obviously an Oscar nomination, Sundance, uh, just everything yeah. uh, from last year. So this was a really, really good film. Uh, are we going to talk about the other movie at all? <laughs> they wouldn't send it. They're not sending it to press. The... Uh, the uh, dramatized television version uh, that featured what many people think was a fatal piece of miscasting. Well, you know, look, loves me some Zoe. Yeah, Zoe cannot play Nina Simone. Yeah, and and what's most interesting, if you if you get this movie mm-hmm. uh, and this music, watch this documentary. Whatever yeah. happened? What happened, Miss Simone? And listen to this music, and you'll know. Yeah. Why Zoe Saldana can't play Nina Simone? Yeah. If, if all those people who made that movie had watched this movie and listened to this music, they'd have been yeah. like, "Oh, honey, sorry, yeah. <laughs> we, we we should have That's been true. paying attention." Uh, you can't play Nina Simone. Yeah. Um, the Everly Brothers, "Harmonies from Heaven," uh, 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 another uh, Blu-ray, this uh, documentary, uh, which celebrates the the period covering from the 1950s to the beginning of the 60s. When the Everly Brothers were just an absolute phenomena, they were those melodies, those choruses, yeah. those harmonies that they did. I, you know the thing about the Everly Brothers in the black community. I'll let you all in on a secret. Maybe <laughs> y'all didn't know. 
in the black community for years, we thought the Everly Brothers were black. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, dude, <laughs> in like the middle 70s, when I'm looking at like, what? That's fascinating. That, that's a white dude doing that? Yeah. So, yeah, um, uh, the DVD for the Everly Brothers. Um, I've done some additional interviews on this with some interesting people. Uh, and several different concerts here, live at Checkers Nightclub in Sydney. Uh, and all of the songs that you know and love from the Everly Brothers right there. Then we have Journey, live in Manila. Now, this is an interesting uh, two-CD and Blu-ray of a concert from Manila, which is a bit of a homecoming mm -hmm. uh, uh, a concert for the, the band's current uh, yeah. uh, lead singer. You know, took the, took the place of Steve Perry some years the ago. Guy, the guy who, who sounds like Steve Perry because he yeah. won like a Steve Perry sound-alike contest. Arnell, Ar 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 pretty... Yeah, exactly. He yeah. sounds like Steve Perry, which yeah. is like no small feat in and of no. itself. And, you know, I was a gigantic... I'll admit right now, I was a gigantic fan of this band in the yeah. early 80s when they were doing their thing. Uh, and this includes... Um, Two CDs featuring pretty much every song that Journey ever, ever made. You know, he even looks a little like Steve Perry. He has that long, yeah, yeah. long, that yeah. long stringy hair. I don't know. Some people are just born to the job that they get, right? I, I, I always felt like, uh, when, I was, when I was a teenager, I always felt like we flirted just a little bit with greatness because one of my uh, best friends from, uh, who I'm still very close friends with from when I was uh, a teenager, his dad was uh, Journey's tax accountant. <laughs> and uh, so we always felt like, wow, that's so cool. I don't, I don't know how that's... That's not even close to name dropping. That's that's almost one step removed from knowing somebody who got a front row seat at a concert. It's <laughs> uh, front row seat at a concert, indeed. All right. Anyway, sticks, uh, sticks live at the Orleans Arena in Las Vegas is what nice. this uh, Blu-ray. This is just a Blu-ray, not a not a Blu-ray CD of a concert filmed uh, at that arena during their summer tour in uh, 2014. Okay, so Sticks, I will admit again. I just love Sticks. Not only not only am I a Sticks fan uh, in my extremely young years uh, when I was roaming around in all kinds of really terrible bands, we used to cover <laughs> the hell out of Sticks. Uh, you just don't get stuff like Mr. Roboto anymore. Nah. You don't. Nah, nah, we covered that. You don't. It, was, it was fantastic. These guys are all looking pretty good, too. So, yeah. uh, live at the Orleans Arena in Las Vegas, Las Vegas Sticks. All right, little little music wrap-up. Well, Mark is going to be happy. He's missing the kid vid. I'm going to rock some kid vid for you right now. We have a couple of Blu-rays, first-time Blu-rays from Paramount and CBS. This is, this is a big deal. If you are a Charlie Brown fan, if you are a Peanuts fan... Uh, you you know that a lot of the holiday specials are on have been on Blu-ray, the you know Great Pumpkin and Christmas special and so forth, Thanksgiving special. Those have been on Blu-ray for a while. What has not been on Blu-ray are these two fabulous classic Peanuts movies. I'm talking about a boy named Charlie Brown and Snoopy Come Home. Uh, this is the, for, uh, honestly as much as I love the holiday specials. They they feel a little bit stretched out. You don't really really get the 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 the, the punch uh, that Charles Schultz created in in the whole Peanuts world because there's a really there's a there are a lot of life lessons there and we often kind of look past it and we look at we love the characters and we love the things they do and we miss the recurring themes of life. Uh, Lucy always pulling away the football. Charlie Brown never learning that lesson. Mm. The doctor is in. Uh, the fact that the only person who is well adjusted in this entire world is the dog. Yeah. Um, you know, there are there are so many great life lessons in all of this that really don't you can't sort of um, uh, explore them uh, 
to the degree that he did in the comic strip running on for years and years uh, in the shorts, in the, uh, in the uh, holiday specials. You have to go to these movies. And this is where the, the rubber really meets the road. Um, these are absolutely terrific. Uh, feature-length films, both of them. Boy Named Charlie Brown, Snoopy Come Home. Snoopy Come Home w- w- still almost brings me to tears. i got to be honest. It's, well, it's amazing. It's so well done. One of the always fascinating, though, about the panels yeah. is that he could tell a story that had as much depth and meaning and resonance in a single panel, maybe yeah. three, maybe four. Yep. But, you know, sometimes a one panel. Yeah. Um, that uh, these movies would take. Uh, how, how long is that? Uh, that that, that um, these are these are both about eighty, a little about over 80, eighty minutes. Eighty, eighty, give eighty or nine take. minute movies. Are going yeah. It was, it was an extraordinary thing that they both achieved the same thing. Very they do. powerful down the line. They do. But he could do it with a single panel. Yeah. If if you if you've never seen um, the panel that he drew to address race. Yeah. When he introduced Franklin. Yeah. Uh, into the comic strip. Yeah, which was a pretty daring thing at that time. At the time, and it, it, yeah. it, there's a wonderful story around it. it. It has to do with a letter that he received from a fan of the comic strip who who uh, you, you know discussed it with him, and they wrote back and forth, and he was resonant about, uh, about doing it, you know, reluctant to do it. Uh, and then he did it, and he did it in a single panel. Go out and find that. I'll leave you guys to do that one on your own. Well, the Blu-rays are beautiful. They, they, they completely capture the genius of the artwork and the animation from the time. A uh, boy named Charlie Brown has some, you know, really psychedelic dream sequence stuff in it, very much of the 60s, because it was made in 1969. Three years later, Snoopy Come Home, they uh, did an amazing thing by um, bringing on Richard and Robert Sherman, the, uh, the Disney uh, songwriting brothers behind Mary Poppins and just about every other great uh, Disney tune of the era. So uh, it's really great stuff. Uh, Both of these, highly recommended. If you're a Peanuts fan, if you're a great animation fan, you're just going to love those. Uh, We've also got uh, Batman, The Killing Joke uh, from Warner Brothers in a limited uh, edition and numbered gift set. This is a Blu-ray, DVD, and digital HD ultraviolet combo set based on a graphic novel that I have not read. Although I hear The Killing Joke is, uh, is a bit of a big deal as a graphic novel. Uh, in any case, this is, uh, this is really good. It's, uh, it's solid animation. It, uh, it's really well written. The, the people who do this, uh, the whole you know uh, animated uh, DC Universe stuff over at Warner Brothers, really, really do a great job. I just wish they'd let them take a crack at some of the features because they have a much better grasp on this stuff. And uh, this one comes with a little Joker figurine. No, not the, not the Jared Leto Joker who's all tatted up and, uh, and you know, millennial. No, this is your good old-fashioned classic Joker with the pointy nose and the pointy chin and, yeah. the, uh, and, the, and the purple suit. Yeah. Um, which is how I like it. Looking for all the world like Cesar Romero. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know, it's it's a. I, I just keep. I watch at least one or two episodes of the old Batman series every week, mm-hmm. just fixing food or doing something else because I've you know I've got the whole ultraviolet thing. So I'll just like on the iPad pop it on while I'm doing something else. It's just amazing how entertaining those things are. Absolutely, they Absolutely. play it so straight and it's so funny. Uh, also from DC, DC Superhero Girls, Hero of the Year this is an original movie. Uh, we're all female empowered here with Wonder Woman and Supergirl and Batgirl and you know uh, Harley Quinn and they they load it up. It's the it's all girl power, and uh, it's okay. It's uh, it's on the lighter side of the DC animation stuff. Uh, this is clearly meant for a it's to skew younger, uh, and you know the, other, the the two here who kind of round things out are Bumblebee and Katana, which 
you know. Uh, Katana. Who shows up in the Suicide Squad movie. Oh, does she? Yes, she's in there. All right. Did not realize that. Well, Bumblebee and Katana, not, not, uh, Poison Ivy is here too. So, uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a little weird that Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn and, uh, you know, wind up being part of the, the team. But anyway, so be it. Uh, it's okay. So that's, uh, you know, that's little, little, uh, superhero girl power. Uh, we also have Arl Stein live action, Arl Stein's mostly ghostly series. Um, this is a new movie, One Night in Doom House. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty teenager stuff. Uh, it, it's not really great, but it's, you know, it's it's fine for TV, and uh, it's got Danny Trejo in it for whatever that's worth. That, that guy just <laughs> he's in everything, and you know he has like a vegan taco franchise now. You know about this? Oh, yeah, I have seen them. They're very nice. They're very nice. <laughs> was, was Pat Prophet one of the writers? He wrote oh. some of those, Pat Prophet. And, you know, he, he's in, he goes back to the Police Academy movies. Do and not like know. Yeah, movies. all that, all that stuff. stuff. Yeah. But he would, he, would do, he would adapt some of those R.L. Steins every now and again. Yeah, and no. those were always pretty good. Yes, I watched the R.L. Stein. Not that one. Okay. Not this yeah. one. Not this one. Anyway, that's, most, that's the, from R.L. Stein's Mostly Ghostly One Night in Doom House. Uh, not, not really scary. It's just good for, you know. Teenagers, Star Wars Rebels complete season two. Uh, the uh, you know this is I I don't know how they I have had Star Wars fans tell me that there are continuity issues in the universe with this. Now, not being as as passionate a Star Wars fan as some people, I, uh, I I couldn't tell you if it were Star Trek, I could tell you every single way that you know the yeah. the world of Voyager uh, betrays what they did in the original series. I could tell you all the disconnect and where stars are in the wrong places, and I, I yeah, yeah I don't have a problem with that. But apparently, uh, a lot of Star Wars fans have problems with the Star Wars Rebels series because it it reinvents a lot of things and uh, deviates. I don't really understand, but anyway. It's CGI animation. It's okay. I guess it's fine. Uh, it, it's I'm not loyal to this world, so I, I can't really tell you. But uh, it, it's certainly well done. I can tell you that much. It is very, very well done for what it is, regardless of whether or not it has any uh, substantial continuity. As, uh, this is on Blu-ray. Has quite a bit of bonus features, uh, the featurette stuff. Looking back on the uh, the way the first season ended, um, how they're sort of trying to maintain the, uh, the 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 references within this world to everything else, even if they don't quite make sense. And uh, it's it's you know behind the scenes stuff. It's good. Then we got some Power Rangers. Oh, Power Rangers. Power Rangers, which never goes away. Which I, era? What, what, what era? Uh, no idea. Yeah. I have no clue anymore. There, at, this, at a certain point, I just kind of gave up on trying to keep track of what was what. And if you, if you add in all the Japanese series, it's even harder to keep track of. Yeah, man. Uh, this is the uh, complete season of Power Rangers Megaforce. You'll notice that's not the complete season one or the complete season two. It's just the complete season. Because there was only one season. Uh, that's why. That's five DVDs in a single set. And then there is the complete season of Power Rangers Super Megaforce. You'll also notice that that is one season. So Megaforce and Super Megaforce were one season apiece. I think it may have to do with the fact, Tim, if you notice the way the costumes are, mm. these costumes look an awful lot like what Michael Jackson was wearing in the 80s. Yeah. yeah and that the, may the, have the something little, to do with it. little military, yeah, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. I don't know. The, the Power Rangers I go back to are the early 
'90s Power Rangers, right? Where they were, not, where they owned the spandex. They owned the spandex. And you know, you had the Pink Ranger. You knew you yeah. had the Rangers. You knew who they were. I even think I think I did the junket for the first Power Rangers feature film. I'm, yeah, I'm sure I did. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, anyway, uh, lots of Power Rangers action here. It's pretty much the same thing as in all the others. So you're not you're not getting anything uh, really new. This comes with uh, Ultraviolet on both of them. Five DVDs apiece. Lots of uh, Megaforce action there. You know, um, Shimmer and Shine, welcome to Zarame Falls. Shimmer and Shine is, of course, a Nickelodeon show kind of in the same style as Bubble Guppies, only it's about Shimmer and Shine, who are a couple of cute little uh, little genies. Big eyes. Big eyes, big heads, mm. a lot of magic. It, I'm, I'm, it, the show's kind of growing on me. My, oddly enough, it grows on me more than it grows on my daughter, who should be enjoying a show about big-headed, big-eyed little genies because she's got a big head and she's got big eyes and she likes magic. But um, she's into things more like what I'm going to talk about next. Um, so I like Shimmer and Shine a little bit more, but I think that goes to my fetish for, for I Dream of Genie. I'm, I'm looking at them as having some kind of uh, oh, kinship yeah. with Barbara Eden. Yeah, there it is. So, uh, but uh, no, this is actually a, a, pretty, a pretty cute show and it's really kind of coming into its own. And uh, you got uh, three little adventures on here. Welcome to Zerame Falls. First wish and happy wish anniversary. It is. Uh, it, it's getting there. It's getting there. Uh, I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. My daughter still won't watch episodes of I Dream of Genie with me. Uh, Peppa Pig, Sunny Vacation, including a four-part special. Uh, this is great. Uh, my daughter still likes Peppa Pig very much, even though she's graduated primarily to uh, Ben and Holly and... Uh, uh, Sarah and Duck, neither of which is on DVD. So the uh, our DVD experience has to continue to be uh, Peppa Pig. But uh, Peppa Pig's Sunny Vacation includes uh, the four-part special plus eight uh, regular episodes. So you get 12 episodes in total. The, uh, the four-part ep- four special uh, adventure is a holiday vacation, which is wonderful. It's flying on holiday, holiday, house, holiday in the sun, end of the holiday. And then you get other episodes like Potato City and Grampy Rabbit's Dinosaur Park. And if you're a fan of the show, you know all that. There's also the aquarium on here, which is where we are going this afternoon. Oh, yes. Long Beach Aquarium. Um, Miraculous Tales of Ladybug and Cat Noir, uh, as seen on Nickelodeon and Nicktoons. Uh, You know what? This is more uh, female superhero stuff. And uh, even though this is not of the DC world or the Marvel world, this is from the Shout Kids world and the Zag animation. Uh, it's fine. I like the fact that these uh, these two uh, extremely fetching young female superheroes are uh, from Paris. So, you know, that's... Uh, let's... Let's rock with that. Uh, I love the fact that Paris gets superhero heroines, and I'm all okay in that. I'm all okay about that. So that's Ladybug and Cat Noir. Kind of, they're a little it, bit like so in English, in French, it's subtitled or they English. Just, they, they're speaking English, and they just live it, in Paris. It's all in, yeah, it's all in English. Uh, I love it. Yeah, it's great. I Why love not? it. They're expats. There you go. It's fabulous. And then we also get from PBS uh, the Super Y series, which is for very young children. My, my daughter has long outgrown this, which is kind of sad to me. Go, this is the, uh, you know, Super Y is, uh, it teaches you about words and letters and spelling. It's very rudimentary. Basically, uh, you know, reading exercises through these little, these kids who become superheroes. And this is Goldilocks and Three Bears is the, uh, the, uh, the superhero-associated uh, lesson there. Also from PBS Kids, the Wild Kratts, which we've never gotten into. Wild Reptiles, it's very you know unusually animated show, not really my speed. Uh, the incredibly shameless Adventures of Panda Warrior, 
which uh, is from Lionsgate. This is a, a fairly shameless knockoff of Kung Fu Panda. Uh, I shouldn't even say fairly shameless. It's straight up <laughs> shameless. And you, you got to wonder about the people who just agree to have their voices in this. Rob Schneider and Norm MacDonald will pretty much do anything yeah. if there's a paycheck attached. Uh, Haley Duff will do anything because she's Hillary Duff's sister, and Hillary's having a hard enough time keeping her career going. So I don't. I, I'll, I'll cut them some some, some slack. Uh, Blu-ray, DVD, and Ultraviolet, Scooby-Doo, and The Curse of the Speed Demon, original movie. There's this whole new class of Scooby-Doo movies now that they're making through this alliance that Warner has with uh, WWE. Mm. It's a little weird that Scooby-Doo has become an iconic cartoon for the wrestling set. I just don't quite understand why they're doing that. Uh, you know what? I completely missed when that happened. Yeah, it's a whole monster truck thing and wrestlers making cartoon cameos here. You I, you do remember when Scooby-Doo had other celebrity cameos. Well, sure, yeah. Like, like yeah. Harlem Globetrotters yeah, and yeah, Laurel and, Har- Laurel and, and Hardy that, and yeah. Three Stooges. Yeah, yeah they, that, was, that yeah. was weird. It's a very strange phenomenon of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Kate and Mim Mim, Balloon Buddies. This is another show. This is three episodes of this very, very rudimentary show. Mim Mim is a big, creepy purple rabbit. Uh, it's a very strange world. It's kind of Teletubby-ish. I don't really, uh, I don't get it. My daughter's not really into it. Somebody must be. They keep on going. Also from uh, PBS Kids, Daniel uh, Tiger's Neighborhood. In this one, Daniel Goes Camping. Very sweet shows, uh, good lessons, very, very uh, moderate. This is from um, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the uh, Fred Rogers Company, so there's, a, there's definitely a Sesame Street Mr. Rogers vibe going on here, and that's fine. And then uh, Caillou's Pet Parade. Uh, Caillou is, the, of course, the bald kid from Canada who, uh, who creeps everybody out, but yet they consider these, these Canadian animated episodes on PBS to be very educational and helpful to kids. I don't really understand why, but my daughter watches them, mm. and she is absolutely magnetized by Caillou, perhaps wondering why he continues to be bald. And uh, lastly, from Nickelodeon, uh, Paw Patrol's Sports Day. Paw Patrol, of course, a lot of cute little dogs, and they do fun things, and you know, they talk and whatever. They play soccer and basketball. It's very unusual. Not really my speed. Don't get it. Someone must. And that is it. So, uh, Tim, let's move on to uh, some. Uh, we, we got we got classic movies, uh, some rather amazing classic movie releases. We got new movies, some yeah. really great stuff, and then we've got some British TV I, I and an interview. By the way, and an interview coming up. Who's the interview with again? The interview is with Kyle Rankin, who is a good friend of mine and uh, who directed a really terrific film, uh, a zombie comedy. Uh, Night of the Living Deb, which we're going to talk about on Blu-ray momentarily. Uh, so we're going to uh, we're going to hear some from Kyle Rankin later in the show, uh, talking about making a super low-budget, crowd-funded, kickstarted feature film. You, uh, in 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 the genre. In the genre. In the genre. I got to tell you, it, it's a it, it's a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. And for young filmmakers, I got to tell you, uh, be bright. Yes. Uh, um, uh, make a genre film. Yeah, make a genre film. You can always sell a genre film because genre films always have categories with in which they, they live. You can yeah. go to Fangoria, you can do all that. Make a genre film if you want to make your bones. If you don't mind, I'm going to start on some of these uh, British, Br- British TV. Yeah, because I haven't uh, watched a whole bunch of these. So I got Inspector Lewis series eight over here, widely expected to be the final in the expect- Inspector Lewis. You know why I love this? It's set uh, in Oxford. Uh, in England, it's just yeah. also very special. Plus, I went there, so <laughs> it's, it's one, one, one of those kind of things. Anyway, I like this series quite a lot. 
uh, among the many sort of uh, fairly contemporary British uh, in, um, uh, detective series. This one's not so gory. It's not about um, you know bodies being pulled out of the muck uh, that they show you. This is more close to a sort of um, gritty Sherlock Holmesian kind of thing, but they're sort of working the inside. This is a uh, series eight of the Inspector Lewis series here. Uh, and then we have Foyle's War Revisited. So love Foyle's War. Love that British it's detective. It's just so fantastic. Um, you know, For Foyle's War is one of the few that I can watch over and over and over again. Um, uh, this one um, is hosted by John Mahoney, of course. You know, uh, he played Fraser's dad on television for all those years. Um, uh, so let's see, what do we have here? Uh, a bonus interview with John Mahoney after the show. The uh, 57 minutes long uh, in widescreen and a little documentary on it, too. Uh, Foyle's War, revisited. That's from Acorn, I believe. Yep. Uh, Being Poirot. Uh, 25 years, after 25 years, uh, David Chusset investigates the appeal of Ath Agatha Christie's Perot. Uh, and, and in fact, there is a great deal of, career, uh, of appeal here, too. He's kind of the quintessential Poirot. I mean, he, I, he really I, is. I take nothing away from uh, Peter Ustinov, who did it in the movies, and uh, you know, anyone else who has played the part. And I, I guess uh, Kenneth Branagh is going to be playing the part himself in the, oh, yeah. in the, in the new. Uh, the new uh, 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 Orient Express yeah, that he's yeah. doing, right? But which should be which should be fairly fascinating. He's directing, right? I think yeah. he is. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Tucci is hosting this one. This is an interesting uh, series as well. Again, love love the Hercule Poirot yeah. series and David Suchet in particular. Uh, Canadian series, a series one nine dash two. This is about these two Canadian cops. I've uh, I've only seen one episode of this. It's about these two ca Canadian cops of one black, one white. They don't particularly get along, uh, but they go out there and they. And they 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 uh, run the streets and mismatch buddy mismatch buddy movie can't can't go wrong straight up character driven drama very very good stuff uh, ten episodes on three discs here um, I don't know sounds interesting to me I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to check out some more of that yeah one nine dash two season two. And we also have uh, Line of Duty, Series 3, which is uh, also from Acorn. This is a terrific, uh, tough kind of uh, the equivalent of SWAT in, uh, in the U.K. This is about the AC-12 team. And a lot of really interesting uh, politics about the way that the, uh, these police units operate in the U.K. Really, really good casting. Uh, very, very well done. Very intense. This is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is really, 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 really top-notch stuff. And there's a terrific behind-the-scenes featurette on this. Um, otherwise, it's uh, six episodes on three discs. Really, really intense. Good casting. Uh, Clean Break, uh, also from Acorn. This is a this is really uh, quite an intriguing kind of criminal thriller. That uh, it, it's four episodes. I'm not sure if this is going to become be more than four episodes. It uh, it seems to be very self-contained. So I don't know if this is going to turn into a more elaborate series or or if they just leave this as a uh, a one-off. But uh, it's if it's just a one-off, it's certainly going to be really really great. Uh, you could almost turn this into a uh, an elaborate thriller feature film Hollywood style and uh, and and probably do more justice to it. At about you know the four episodes run about three and a half hours. 
hours if you watch them all the way straight through. Mm. And it feels very much like they really are elongating the story, probably a little more than they than they should. Uh, this could almost be a Gone Girl type thing. I won't give you any of the plots, ins and outs, but it's very, very uh, it, it's a it's it's good thriller stuff. Does it, uh, does it complete itself at the end? It does. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a clean run. It's a clean run. But then again, so is Stranger Things. Yeah. We got a second season of but that coming out. Yeah, that is irritating. Uh, Endeavor is another series that I really, really like. I like this series. It's set in, in the UK in the 60s. Sean Evans playing a detective uh, named Endeavor Morris. Um, it's super duper mod, this series, but it's not campy in any way. Uh, and, and they are sort of true to the period completely and totally, including the music. Um, this is the complete third civ- uh, season uh, of Endeavor. From, it's from the Masterpiece uh, Mystery Series that runs on PBS all the time. So if you haven't watched that already, get caught up with this, uh, with this DVD. Uh, Blu-ray, sorry, Blu-ray, actually. And uh, on DVD, speaking of period stuff and speaking of Canada, uh, we have a great box set of seasons five through eight of Murdoch Mysteries, uh, which is really, really great. Set in Toronto, turn of the century, uh, just good procedural stuff. And the thing I always like about this show in particular and, uh, you know, obviously Canada turn of the century is a setting and a place that we don't often We don't often about. go there at all. Yeah. yeah. So it's good. It, that's, that's nice to go there. But it, uh, the nice thing is that it does it, – it, it wraps in a lot of historical figures. They always do what Downton Abbey did, which is, you know, uh, you, you, get, you really feel the period because, you know, Churchill plays a part. Conan Doyle will play a part. Uh, a lot of the great inventors and politicians of the era – uh, get kind of uh, you know even peripherally wrapped in, and what's what's interesting is that because it's not present day, you don't have to worry about cell phones, cell you don't phones have to worry about DNA internet, evidence in the yeah. internet, yeah, none of that stuff. It's just good old fashioned detective work. It's a lot of fun. So that's uh, that is a great box set, uh, which we'll we'll have to bring back for our uh, our holiday uh, gift guide coverage. That's seasons five, six, seven, and eight in a fabulous box set. If you're looking to catch up. Uh, all right, Tim. It's new movie time. Oh, new movies, new movies. Well, new yeah. movies. Uh, let me see. You know, I'm going to start with Tale of Tales. Tale. Of, oh man, that was a that was a that was really. What's the word for John C. Riley? Uh, it, it's the, you know, it. it I, I I admire so much about this movie, but at the same time, I feel like if if Del Toro had made this movie, mm. it would have been ten times better. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It just needs that Pan's Labyrinth quality. It doesn't. It's these vignettes uh, that, that cover these sort of uh, dark and uh, a little bit disturbing fairy tales. <laughs> fairy tales. Yeah. Sort of, sort, sort of as they were constructed back in the day. Yeah. Back when they a, were originally a, constructed. It's a series of, of, of fairy tales originally based on the uh, on Italian on on Italian fairy tales. And or actually a volume of Italian fairy tales, which was sort of like one of the original compilations. We don't really know who wrote a lot of fairy tales. A lot of them just were passed on through time. Um, so this is uh, this is a a very strange collection of fairy tales from that original Italian volume that. Uh, there's almost no way to really kind of go into it. John C. Riley is in it for about ten seconds. He and Salma Hayek are uh, are a king and queen who make an unusual deal to an, in order to have a child, an heir, and then that winds up dovetailing into a whole lot of other very very weird areas and and other weird peripheral stories. And you kind of jump back and forth between them. And um, again, it's uh, you know it's uh, I, I I like the film. 
Um, but it just feels like something that should have been in the hands of a really major director like Del Toro, who could have really done something very interesting with it. Uh, Vincent Cassell, who I always enjoy, uh, plays a really that whole bit with the uh, the two sisters. And, yeah, uh, that's yeah, just, with the skin and the aging oh, and all that kind of thing. That's just creepy. There's a lot of creepy in there. <laughs> she has to eat a heart. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean, man, that heart eating scene. Well, I know it's not a heart, yeah. but it doesn't matter. It was just you know, you know more, any, more than I needed. In any case, the the director of the film is Matteo Garone, who uh, you know is a is a is not a director of this kind of material. Mm-hmm. He uh, he did Gamora some years ago, which I think got oh, an yeah. Oscar nomination, which is very naturalistic yeah and uh this is not naturalistic this is very very artful and, and classic stylized, and stylized yeah. and it's um you know i applaud him for really stretching but it it doesn't feel like this is again it should have been del toro so yeah it was not a natural fit for me yeah. uh the teenage mutant ninja turtles out of the shadows right oh, the so michael, this, the michael bay thing so this is this is just so weird so like one of, one of the very first movies that i covered uh, in, 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 in when I first got to L.A., 1990, whatever the year was, was the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live-action film, right? So it was like yeah. these guys. Actually, actually, I actually went to this set and did a set visit, and it was these guys in Ninja Turtle outfits, right, with little, hel- little heads on. And then the voices were done by other actors. I think mm-hmm. Corey Feldman or somebody did one of the voices, all of, all of these kind of people. This movie... Somehow, it's, it's an amalgamation of these sort of 3D-generated, uh, CGI-generated Ninja Turtles in, in the real world, in live action. I can tell you, I didn't, I didn't really care for that. I preferred the fairly little dudes wearing Ninja Turtle outfits with just the heads on. And stuff, and they would jump around and dance. You know, Sam Rockwell is in that original yeah. Ninja Turtles. Uh, Scott yeah. Wolf, Sam Rockwell. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm down there. Look around. Yeah. You'll, one of those henchmen uh, is working. So anyway, this came out. This one is uh, you know full of all kinds. You got Megan Fox running around this thing, and Will Arnett doing one of the voices. I suppose for the contemporary young young audience, this might be a lot of fun, but I don't remember it doing all that well at the box office. Uh, here we have the um, uh, Blu-ray, uh, 3D Blu-ray, uh, and DVD, and HD digital, uh, all kinds of stuff on this, including deleted scenes uh, and a couple of little documentary uh, docs and some songs and uh, a lot of other fun stuff. So for uh, Teenage Mutant Turtle uh, completus, I suppose, uh, out of the shadows, 3D on Blu-ray and DVD. You're gonna have to have it. Uh, we got a new film here with Nicholas Holt and Kristen Stewart called Equals. This was just in theaters uh, from A24. Uh, this is now out on uh, Blu-ray and digital HD ultraviolet set from uh, uh, Lionsgate and A24. Um, the director of the film, the writer-director of the film, is Drake DeRamus, who I am actually a really, really big fan of. Yeah. Uh, Drake DeRamus, I think, is a, a super talented director. Uh, he, the the Like Crazy was the film that really kind of put him on the map. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, he made uh, The Beauty Inside and, and Breathe In. And um, he's uh, he he makes just really interesting humanistic films that just have a, a just a wonderful sort of ethereal quality to them. And this is kind of the same. This got a lot of. Uh, this was really ripped by a lot of critics, which I thought was unfair. I think they they kind of missed the whole point of it. Um, Equals is somewhere between Logan's Run and THX eleven thirty eight. 
Mm-hmm. It is a dystopian future uh, romance. It kind of hits all those beats, much more THX 1138 than, than uh, Logan's run. But it feels, you know, it's people who are not allowed, and even 1984, you could yeah, say. but 84, Gattaca. Gattaca, perfect example. Very antiseptic uh, dystopian future, and two people who are trying to defy the, uh, the prohibition on, uh, on love. And it's not, you know, I, granted, it's not deep, it's not heavy, it's not philosophical, it doesn't really, you know, break new ground. But for what it is, it certainly belongs in, uh, in the class with a lot of those other uh, previous films. It does a better job of stylizing, and the, and the performances are really good. I, I, thought, uh, I thought it was perfectly, uh, perfectly fine. I look forward to more Drake Doremus. Uh, Urge is a Blu-ray and digital HD disc being released. It stars, stars Pierce Bronson, who's had a, an interesting post-Bondian career. Yes, hasn't uh, he? Uh, you know, he's roamed around, did a whole lot of stuff. Actually, if you, P- Pierce Brosnan, before Bond, had a pretty interesting career, too. If you go all the way back to Remington Steel, yep. uh, you know, in the, I don't know what, middle 80s, maybe the early 80s or something like that, yep. and a few. Uh, is he Scottish? What is he, Scottish? Irish. Irish, Irish he's an Irish. Irishman. He did a couple of, he made a movie yeah. called Tannen, I remember. Oh, he yeah, He dealt with yeah. the uh, IRA and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, now he plays a lot of bad guys. In this one, he's playing this nightclub owner uh, who introduces, uh, you know, some, some folks who come by the club uh, to a new designer drug that releases all of their inhibitions so that they can engage their urge is... Uh, Thus, the title of the film, and it becomes a fairly interesting movie. Um, you know, uh, uh, neat little thriller in, in, uh, in a different walk for uh, for Pierce Brosnan in this one. So check it out. Urge Blu-ray DVD. We got three regular DVDs uh, this week. Center Stage on Point. I can't believe the whole Center Stage thing is still going. That original film, which which Zoe Saldana was in, she's the only person that came out of that thing unscathed. Uh, and her which, dancing in that movie is extraordinary. It's great. She's, it's she's, great. She was very good. Yeah. yeah, but the rest of that movie is just dreadful. Yeah. I, I had to review that at the time, and I just that was that was really like pulling teeth. It was just agonizing. But you know what? Dancing people love dancing movies. How many step up movies have there been? Yeah, there you go. They're yeah. all the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. That anyway, it, the dancing is fine. It's uh, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But the thing that is most ridiculous is the name of the director. You know who directed this? <laughs> who directed? Director X. <laughs> Who's credited directing this? It's absolutely absurd. Uh, but what is that? Is that an avoidance or is that a guy who know. uses that silly tag? I don't know. Uh, it used to be Alan Smithy and now it's uh, Director you X. Know, I, I, now it's, it's just, I don't want to take a credit. Um, uh, we also have Fishes and Loaves, Heaven Sent. This is uh, more in the Fishes and Loaves uh, faith based. Uh, vain. It's there's nothing particularly great here. Uh, you got a few names: Dominic Swain and Bruce Davis, and people who don't really show up in in many movies anymore. Um, you know, it's fine. It's 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 like most of the faith based films, which I I I don't want to criticize them unduly because I realize that there is an audience for these, and there are people who like these, but they're not dramatic. They well, just the, the thing the thing that's going on now with these movies because I used to sort of like like really get, but every now and again. There will be one that actually works. Now, the, the, once in a while, every now and again, once now, in a but while. But see, that's the measure for me. Yeah. If 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 one can work, then they can all work. Yeah. That means that the ones who make the, the the filmmakers who make the ones that don't work that walk down the path the way yeah. that one does. That means you're not trying. 
Yeah. Uh, you try harder, and you can make that movie, and then that movie will work for a broader audience. If you if you just decide to make the movie for the audience that it's pointed at, you yeah. know, which is not an unusual, uh, you know, that's a that's a long historical tradition yeah. In, in, yeah. In, in filmmaking, right? In the United States, it's not like there haven't always been movies Correct. directed toward very specific audiences. But you know, I don't know. I just it seems to me if you can make one that'll work for a broader audience, do it. I would hope. Anyway, it's about a, basically about a guy. He's a pastor, and he he gets a new assignment in Arizona, and the town's a mess. And you know, everybody's got to fix. He's got to help fix everybody's lives. It's a you know, it's a, it's heartwarming. Uh, compadres with Omar Chaparro and Joey Morgan. I have no idea who either of these people are, but uh, you know, they, they clearly know what they're marketing, which is it's a buddy comedy with two people you've never heard of. One of them's a tough guy. One of them's a nerd. Yeah, it's, it's the odd couple. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, this is this is middling stuff. It comes with an ultraviolet uh, code on it as well. If you wanted to actually keep it. Um, it basically about you know it's a it's a it's a tough Mexican cop and uh, American this kid who's like a hacker this American kid, and uh, that's it. They got to bring down a, you know a, a evil criminal boss and uh, whatever. It's it's serviceable but mar- uh, marginal. Uh, I got a I got a New Zealand uh, made New Zealand based horror film over here on Blu-ray Blu-ray. It's called uh, The Dead Room. Um, it's one of those. It's it's. It, this is actually meant to be uh, to be scary. I saw I saw a bit of it. I haven't seen it all, but it's one of those kind of movies uh, where you you have a some sort of a contortionist, a, a professional contortionist in it, and they take him and they you know and they, they they beat him all up and smear him in blood and dirt, and then they have him do one of their weird sort yeah. of contortionist sort of positions and and walk backwards and upside down on their head or something like that. So sort of it looks like they've been you know uh, broken to pieces by some horrible demon. It's one of those movies. I got to tell you that was. An insanely effective uh, 15 years ago when I first saw it. Now, I just wonder, you know, what uh, opera from, uh, you know, Cirque du Soleil <laughs> they got that contortionist from. Yeah. Anyway, this is called The Dead Room. It's about these, um, uh, this family that lives out in this farmhouse in New Zealand and something horrible happens and they run away and they report it and, and, and then uh, they send out a group of young scientists to sort of figure out what happened there and, and they get engaged by the spirit uh, and thus the contortionist and all of that. The Dead Room on Blu-ray from New Zealand. Uh, now you see me too. Yeah, I just dropped a bunch of stuff. That's all right. Yeah. The piles always fall over. Uh, now you see me too, the sequel to Now You See Me, a movie which I thought was just profoundly overrated. Uh, just happened to have a good cast and a little bit of stylish direction, but which made no sense whatsoever. None whatsoever. None at all. Uh, the, the whole, I mean, the idea of illusionists is, is, is sort of like superheroes, which is essentially what this is, uh, in, in a way. It's a, it's a superhero team of illusionists. Yeah, superhero. And you know what? The movie's a cheat. It's a total cheat because all the illusions are computer generated. It's just, you know, it's a total and complete cheat. And I did – the first movie had this one particular conceit in it that I thought was interesting, right? The first movie claimed anyway that all of the illusions were in fact illusions executed by, you know, know, illusionists doing their illusions. And everything you saw when you were sitting in the audience watching the movie was a magic trick that played out the exact same way for everyone who was watching it on the day of the shoot. That's the – and then at the end of the movie, they completely and totally abandoned that. And I thought, I thought that that really just ruined the entire concept that was there. How they got a second True. movie out of it, I'll never know. I it, it, no one, even after seeing it, it, it still doesn't make any sense. Uh, the only thing that's that's any good here is the casting. I mean, the, and they realize very smartly that over the years, uh, Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman will do anything for a paycheck. Yeah. So they figure, why not get them both? Yeah. 
So, uh, and yeah, Morgan Freeman is the is the more uh, prominent figure here, and he's completely wasted. He just he, but he's wonderful. He just does great work, even when it's a nothing part. It's like he can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear or a lump of mud. It's he amazing. walks in. He sounds like God. He says whatever silly it's crap. Kind of amazing. Uh, they make him say, and then he goes home. It, what's weird to me is that when you have Woody Harrelson, Mark Ruffalo, Jesse Eisenberg, Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, really an amazing bunch of actors. Oscar nominations in there and, you know, superheroes and the whole thing. And, of course, the wonderful Lizzie Kaplan, who, for my money, is the only reason you see this movie is because Lizzie Kaplan is yeah. just just to die for. But who gets the front position in the artwork? It's Dave freaking Franco. Yeah, uh, James now, Franco's little brother for for people who don't know. And who who has only been in a handful of movies, by the way. He's I mean, funny in one of those Neighbors like movies or yeah, something neighbor, like that. And the Neighbors movies he was in in 21 Jump Street. Yeah, but and, mostly he's James Franco's little brother. That, but basically, yeah, he you look at him and you and you go... Where's where's James? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do. That's what, I, that's what happens whenever I say that's it. That's what I was going to say. Which is mean, and I'm you, sorry. You, you look at him and you go, oh... Couldn't afford James, huh? <laughs> you know, yeah. You know. I mean, that's sort of. I, I hate to be mean because like the, he's like Frank Stallone. He exactly. He's. I mean, he is talented. I'm yes. not going to take anything away. Funny he's. A, he is funny, and he's got timing, and he's got acting chops. But he is so much a, a clone of his brother. He should that, have become like Tom Hanks's brother. Just you know, yeah. be, be a be a marine biologist or, or, or something, or like uh, Joe Estevez. Yeah, you there know? you go. There right? you go. Yeah, Joe just, Estevez just is like. I, I'm never going to be Martin Sheen. I look like Martin Sheen. I sound like. Martin Sheen, so I'm just going to forge a career making <laughs> low-budget, B-grade action movies where they'd love to have Martin Sheen, but they can't, they can't afford it. They can't afford it. So I'll I'll be your I'll be your low-budget Martin <sighs> Sheen. I'm Joe Estevez. Dude, this is crazy to me. Like Hard Target Two, right? Hard right. Target Two. First of all, that means that they think Hard Target, uh, uh, 1993, uh, Jean Claude yeah. Van Damme, yeah. uh, uh, Wu, yeah, uh, John Wu, John Wu, first one, right? Yep. Yep. First American. That was his first, first English language or whatever. Correct. That's whatever, first Hollywood like that. film, uh, which was sort of a big deal at the time. Okay, movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward more than 20 years, and, and you decide that Scott Atkins and, 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 and Ron Amitra and Robert Nepper and a few of these other guys are worthy of a movie called Hard Target 2. Because what? Because what? Because me and you are sitting around for 25 years thinking to ourselves, <laughs> when, do you, when, you I, think, when do you think you're going to put out Hard Target 2? You know, it, uh, it's just insane. Anyway, uh, uh, that's what this is. Uh, Blu-ray, DVD, and HD, Hard Target 2. I don't know who the... Uh, the, bar- the and, and yes, is. it is d- directly you know, related to the yeah. uh, feature commentary track and a few other things. You know, whatever. So uh, Jane Austen was, was you know, there, were, there was that Jane Austen moment that we had about 10, 15 years ago where there was just everything that she was writing was, was winding up as a movie. Or at yeah, least every a young, significant... s- young starlet actress had their shot. Emma this... and Sense and yeah. Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. They were, they, it was, it was, and, you know, uh, Emma Thompson won an Oscar and for writing the script for yeah. uh, Sense and Sensibility, which Ang Lee directed. It was a big deal. And then Jane Austen, the Jane Austen moment passed. It's kind of back. Uh, at least for this one movie, on Blu-ray, Love and Friendship, which is delightful. And I'm kind of amazed that this didn't get made at the time. And on top of everything else... With Stillman. With Stillman. Who doesn't do period films? But but yet... Whit Stillman, that whole affected metropolitan last days yeah, of disco, a certain, a certain sort of language which is being spoken and sharpness. That's, it's a perfect marriage. It's a perfect, perfect marriage. And in this this particular love and friendship, uh, which is adapted from uh, a series of uh, letters, actually. Yes. 
um, that Jane Austen wrote when she was very, very, very young. I, th I think she was still a teenager when she was writing these sort of epistemological letters back and forth. And it's really, really funny because if you go look those letters up and read them, um, they're full of all kinds of spelling errors. And you, it's like a little girl yeah. writing. Uh, but it's so it's sharp and so inside. And the talent is there. She, she already understands the world around her yeah. and the way it works. And it shows up here. Kate Beckinsale can spit that language out so good. as good as anybody. Yeah, it's just really. I mean, it's a comedy of manners, and it's very much of the era. And it is just, it's got all that stuff that you expect. The, uh, the, you know, the, the, the twists with the relationships and some wonderful, wonderful performances here. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a great cast. And it's a fun film. And uh, bravo to Whit Stillman, really. Uh, Chloe Savigny, also really, really good in this. Yeah, yeah, it's very a, sharp as her Very friend. sharp. And just delightful. I got Money Monster over here. Uh, Jodie Foster directed this film, her first directorial I have not, in I, quite I, a while. I was going to go see this, and then I elected not to after the reviews came out. So yeah. you tell me. I did. I, I, I saw it at yeah. the time. This movie doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. That's so sad. And the thing about it, it opens really, really strongly, and George Clooney is just outstanding in this movie. He's play, basically playing one of those money guys, you know, who, yeah. who gives all this sort of advice, outrageous and, and funny. She's the producer off in the, um, off in the control room. A guy, uh, played by Jack O'Connell, comes in and takes over the show. So, uh, oh, uh, Al Pacino. Uh, right, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoonish kind of situation. There, there are all kinds of moments in this film that are uh, interesting and intriguing moments, and then it breaks down. And and by the time we wind our way toward the end of this film, when it goes really, really dark and then ends on a most profoundly dark note, this film isn't working at all. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, again, I'm extremely sort of disappointed in it. And in any case, uh, this Blu-ray and digital uh, has deleted scenes and some interviews with the cast and other special features on it. But, yeah, a really, really sort of uh, disappointing undertaking. And I think it didn't understand. Look, this is what happens. Jodie Foster, liberal. Yeah. George Clooney, liberal. Yeah. I love my liberals. Don't make your liberal <laughs> movies with all your liberal crap in it yeah. and shove your liberal crap into your liberal movies and then shove them in my f – you can't do it. They have not figured out how to, do, how, to, how to do it in a way that is no different than what we were talking about with, with those, the, the faith-based faith faith yeah. films. The, right? it, it, works, it does not work for the exact same reason. You know, it, it, and, that, and, I, and I, when I've taught class, and you've, you've probably done this as well, the one thing I always try to emphasize to people about drama is, and I just made this, I made this point the other day, that drama has to have uncertainty. Lectures and sermons have certainty. Yeah. And we even said this on the radio, and Charles, uh, Charles Solomon, uh, when, we, when we were, uh, he and I were uh, on the radio. The animation, yeah. Uh, yeah. Charles, Charles made a very, uh, he kind of completed my thought on the radio in a really good way, where, where I, uh, he said, um, you know, the re one reason faith-based movies don't really work is because drama is all about asking questions, and faith is all about giving you answers. Yeah. And uh, that, I think, is the same problem when people start to overly politicize their movies is they're, they're giving you the answers, and you should be asking the audience to, to ask questions. Yeah. Um, I made this point just the other day, you know, talking about Woody Allen, right, and the whole Woody Allen uh, molestation accusation. It all kind of comes up again now that everybody's talking about Cafe Nate, Society Nate, Nate Parker. And, and Nate Parker and, 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 thing, and yeah. everybody's like, well, you know, Polanski, and Polanski becomes part of the conversation. And I said, look, you, you can't analogize all these things. Roman Polanski, these are all different. Roman Polanski was charged, fled the country, never faced justice. Uh, charge, pled guilty to the charges. Yes. He did, in fact, plead guilty. So we know. Fled the country. And then he fled the country. All kinds of little details in there. But he, in fact, pled guilty to, to the charges made against him. Nate Parker 
w- w- faced justice, was acquitted. Was acquitted. Went through the system. Done. Woody Allen. Never. No act- charges. No charges. No nothing. Accusations. And yet people. In- investigation. Sure. By the authorities who decided not to charge, by but, the way, which is a very specific thing. Now, the thing with Woody Allen, and this is where I'm coming back around to this, is that Woody Allen, a lot of people really still dump on him because of the Soon Yi thing. So in their minds, they think, oh, ew, creepy guy did the Soon Yi thing. Therefore, and they transfer it to the other. He must be guilty of the other thing. Yeah. Screenwriters use that as a device to throw you off. Think about Home Alone. Robert's mm. Blossom is the creepy guy roaming around. He must have done something. By the end of the movie, filmmaker says, no, he didn't. He's, mm. a, sweet, he's a sweet man. He is Christmas. Mm-hmm. Naughty. Shame on you for thinking otherwise. And because we have that inclination, we don't, we're judgmental of people who feel creepy, who just look creepy. Whereas someone who's beautiful, if George Clooney is accused of something, yeah. we don't care. We don't care if it's a mountain of evidence. We love George Clooney. He's beautiful, and we will not believe it until you shove it, it down my yeah, throat. You have, you, and certainly we're not capable of putting these things in silos. We, we, we yeah. allow them to bleed one thing over into the other thing. People to this day, and I, and I, I literally had this conversation not, less, yeah. not more than a week ago, think that Woody Allen had an affair with his daughter. They think that Sun Yi yeah. was his daughter. They do not. I'm like, look up her name. And they and they look up her name and it says Sun Yi Previn. Yeah. I'm like, who who is who's the not Previn? even his stepdaughter? Not even his stepdaughter. Not yeah. related to her in any way, shape, nope. or form. Never was. Which doesn't make it <laughs> not. Which creepy. doesn't make anything. <laughs> but yeah. it's but it's but it's a set of specifics here yeah. that people don't. want. They decided the thing that they want to believe. I don't know anything about Woody Allen or what he did to anybody, but I know that nothing has been settled. So here's so here's my point then bringing back this back to money monster money monster the these are these are these real life scenarios reveal how people react to things where uncertainty is mm. is 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 part of the equation where there's not an easy answer we get volatile with each other we argue with each other because there is uncertainty there's unpredictability because we we have you know perception colliding with Desire and all of these, and a of few these, facts, and a few facts, and and when and that makes for drama, either in real life or on the screen. But when you are certain about everything, and when you deliver everything on a cookie to the audience, whether it is political or spiritual or whatever it is, it just lacks drama. Yeah, yeah. it just lacks drama. So there's our there's there's ways and Tim's lecture for the week. <laughs> uh, the ones below, well, you'll get paid for that, folks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The ones below. Is uh, from the Magnet line of Magnolia is uh, is a pretty decent little uh, thriller, thriller uh, that kind of goes into the Rosemary's Baby mold a bit. A uh, young couple uh, expecting a child, and uh, another another couple that moves into the same complex, and all kinds of madness uh, and and horror transpires. As a result, uh, you can fill in the blanks. These, the, this is a kind of a genre unto itself, and uh, it, it does a decent job of it. It's called The Ones Below, meaning the couple that lives below. That's, but, but there's a metaphor there at, at work as well. Uh, uh, uh. I've got the darkness here. This is a Kevin Bacon movie, horror movie, um, with Rada Mitchell came out. Uh, not too terribly long ago, actually. This particular DVD, Blu-ray, Blu-ray DVD, has what it calls a shocking alternate ending. I have not seen the shocking alternate ending. I saw the film when it came out the first time. I had issues with the film because it does this one particular thing that I don't care for. They did it, they did it in the Poltergeist films way back in the day. So this film is shaped around this family. They go out into the desert. They have this son. The son is autistic, sort of locked in his own little world. The son is played by the kid uh, who plays Batman in the series Gotham 
on television, right? Right, and, and I can tell that the movie had been in the can for a while because you look at that kid and he's like a little little kid, uh, you know, like a, you know, like a little boy. And boys have growth spurts, but you can tell that he's significantly younger than he is than he is in the Gotham series for Batman. So this movie <laughs> had been in the can for a little while, right? So he has this, he's autistic. They go out there. He falls into a cave. He diddles around with these sort of Native American uh, icons and whatnot. And the next thing you know, there's a spirit that follows him back oh, to the house. And it's a whole damn mess. This is the thing that this film does. The drive. <laughs> me crazy though right it makes the native american spirits out to be the bad guys right these evil native american spirits haunting our family and i'm like no they're not you that kid took their rock <laughs> they were fine in the cave doing what the hell they were yeah. doing you know they had trapped the spirit in the rocks or whatever the kid came same thing in poltergeist yeah they're not evil native you built your house <laughs> <laughs> on, our, on, our gra- on our graveyard. On our graveyard, dude. Yeah. We're pissy about that. That's fair. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, this is from the makers of The the Purge and Insidious. It's actually an okay movie. Uh, and the alternate ending, I don't know. I might stick it in, fast forward, see what the hell the alternate ending is. What <laughs> the hell not? The Darkness. All right. And uh, then... Uh, uh, I, got, I got Honey 3 over here. You know you, you know what's funny about Honey 3? I didn't even know there was a Honey 2. No, I didn't know it was a Honey 2. <laughs> honey, I remember. Honey had uh, Jessica Alba in it. And pretty much if Jessica Alba's standing around, I'm probably going to go see that. Uh, and because <laughs> she's Jessica Alba, and I just can't help myself. Um, Billy Woodruff uh, directed this film, though. Billy gets around, has a feature commentary from him on the movie, and some deleted scenes whatnot. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. It's a mm-hmm. dance movie. It, it, what's going on in the movie is, is irrelevant. You get a whole bunch of really young, very fit, sexy people dancing. If they were smart, they would do a joint crossover sequel Called Honey, I Shrunk Honey. <laughs> where I shrunk honey. Uh, you fill in the book. Uh, and the last one this week, before we dovetail, in, last new film this week, before we dovetail into our interview with Kyle Rankin, the director and uh, co writer and producer of Night of the Living Deb. That is Deb, D E B. So here's this is a zombie comedy. And you'll hear all about uh, how Kyle put this thing together in uh, in the interview. But it's uh, they kickstarted this thing, and it does not look like a kickstarted movie. Let me just tell you, this thing looks like it, a, a this is a com- very polished, high production value comedy. Uh, Ray Wise very funny in it, but the star of this film is the re- is the the reason to see this. Maria Thayer is incredibly funny. Um, I will not give you any of the details. Basically, this is about a woman who she plays it like those great comedians from the 1960s, mm. whether it was Barbara Eden, you name it, where they could be endearing, a little bit ditzy, um, but the comedy came from the fact that they were disconnected to the world around them. Just mm. all this stuff is going on, and they just kind of don't quite process what's going on, which makes it so funny when here she is in Maine, uh, you know, in Portland, Maine, and uh, just living her life, and then one morning, you know, after a certain event she wakes up and next thing you know everyone around her is turning into zombies and it is just it is it is really genuinely charming and funny and takes some fascinating twists uh kyle and uh his uh, his, uh, his partner michael cassidy and maria thayer uh and uh, a couple others who were involved in the production they the editor and another co-writer they all do a really really fun commentary uh, there are bloopers. There's behind-the-scenes stuff, but uh, it is uh, it really it's the movie itself is is uh, quite a discovery, and it's a genre that just doesn't really doesn't it, go it, away. It doesn't go away. But there also aren't very many good ones. You know, did you see Zombievers? 
Zombie, was that? I don't think I saw that one. That was just dreadful. It's just <laughs> stupid. It's a bit like toxic waste goes into the river and, and zombifies some beavers, and then these kids are in a, in a log cabin, and the beavers are attacking. It was horrible. It's just, it's just really just... And way- even that'll find the, it, uh, find the place, someplace. It will, but it, it was terrible. Yeah, you know, yeah. This is really funny. So, one. without further ado, here is our interview uh, with Kyle Rankin, the uh, director of Night of the Living Deb. It is my privilege to be talking to the director of the very, very funny uh, zombie comedy Night of the Living Deb, D-E-B, Kyle Rankin, who, uh, who is also a friend of mine. Our daughters are almost exactly the same age, so I, I feel like we're kind of going through a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the same tides of life. So, Kyle, thank you for, uh, for talking to us, and um, tell us, how did Night of the Living Deb, what was the genesis of the story? Uh, yeah, wait, thanks for having me. And, um, yeah, wanting to make a, uh, basically a zombie romantic comedy with a female lead. Uh, I felt like I hadn't completely seen that before. Um, and wanting, I, I did kind of reverse engineer it. I wanted to go back to where I'm from, Maine, and I wanted to do a very low budget movie, uh, around $200,000. And I wanted to kickstart it, um, so the reverse engineering came from like, uh, you know what? I should probably do something fairly commercial. Um, I, I think I'll, I think I'll do a zombie film. Um, Shaun of the Dead is a favorite of mine. I think I should, you know, have a title that is uh, steal the brilliance of that, and that, and that the title is lets you know what you're getting into immediately. Um, so, yeah, re- reverse engineered a bit, and then I wrote. Uh, 17 pages of it. I handed it to my buddy Andy Seltzer, and uh, who I think is a very funny writer, and he he liked them. I had written a male lead actually, and I said, you know, I think this should be a woman. He agreed, and then he went off and uh, wrote a very very funny script um, that I was you know, had the privilege of directing. So. Well, I, it is you know there are uh, obviously you mentioned uh, uh, Shaun of the Dead. There are a number of zombie comedies out there. There have been over the last few years, and I, and I have to say we've talked about a lot of them on the podcast, and and the majority of them are just sorely lacking. They all seem to follow the same idea, which is that we we try to get uh, they they try to sort of get humor out of the uh, out of what the zombies are doing as opposed to what other people are doing. And one of the things that I think you did incredibly well is that you really, you, you cast very, very well. And Maria Thayer, uh, who I'm not really familiar with, but she's perfect in the part. Talk a little bit about how you cast her and, and what she brings to it, and, and particularly the character of Deb, because everything revolves around Deb, who has this sort of deadpan way of looking at what's happening around her and really never feels too rattled by it, which is where I think a lot of the comedy really comes from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I used to, once the script was done, like, wow, love this character. Wow, we better find someone damn good uh, to, to carry this this movie. I uh, didn't, couldn't afford a casting director, so kind of, luckily I've been doing this long enough where I have some actor friends and start to ask around, and, and at some point Maria's name came up. Like, I know Maria Thayer, and I, uh, I had a, a bit of a, a knowledge of her, and we met for coffee, uh, myself and Michael Cassidy, who uh, uh, plays the lead, the romantic lead, Ryan, also helped me produce. Uh, and we just, the three of us just laughed, you know, for three or four hours, and uh, uh, it was really fun. And I, she really kind of was the part. Uh, no no real acting required. Um, but she's very witty um, and, and was trained classically, but also is just is really a lot of the, my favorite lines in the movie were, were things that she just came up with um, 
uh, off the cuff. Uh, so yeah, very. Uh, she is kind of that magnetic in person. Um, she just kind of has it dialed up to eleven you know, in the movie. And she does. She does a wonderful job. I mean, she really does. It's yeah. Just it's it's. You you experience it through her, and because you experience it through her, it obviously it's and and then another probably a problem I think I have with with zombie comedies, the other ones is that they they don't know just how much to be a horror film and how much to be a comedy. They and they tend to sort of err on the side of being more horror and less comedy, which winds up I think undercutting both of it. But here, no one's really going to be scared out of their wits watching this. It's it's more for laughs, which I think is the right way to play it, and. If you could talk about Ray Wise as well, because Ray Wise is such a, an iconic figure for anybody who's into genre films, obviously going all the way back to RoboCop, but even Twin Peaks and, and on and on. I mean, he's really one of those fixtures of the convention mindset. How did Ray come to this project? Yeah, Ray is uh, Ray's a friend. He did a very kind thing for me in 1998. He, uh, I was nobody. I was 26 trying to make a a short and uh, had seen Twin Peaks, really liked Ray, wrote him a letter, was bothering his uh, manager with, with letters. Uh, uh, the guy I made the movie with said I, I was very good at drawing characters. They're going to draw Ray's face and include it in the letter. We were just doing, we were courting Ray and really uh, trying to push for him, And but we couldn't afford to pay him uh, the short. But uh, the pitch was, Ray, you know, could you come to Maine for a weekend and, and be the... Um, you know, the titular character in this in this short film, and uh, luckily he he said yes for some reason. He just really liked the script, and he um, we had a local person, you know, bumped him up to first class. He was a was back when you know travel agents were all over the place, and and it just really it was wonderful. He did a very kind thing for me uh, all those years ago, and I think this is maybe the thirteenth time I've worked with him. He's I now try and put him in everything that I do. So. Well, he, he's just, he, he's one of those great presences, you know, he just, it's, but part of it is obviously the, the, the smile, which everyone recognizes, but he, he brings that gravitas, you know, and, and uh, yeah. I, 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 it's, it's, it's so fun. It's, it's so much fun when he shows up in the film. It's so much fun to see him. Um, talk if, for a second, just a little bit about the challenges of, of working on a budget when you set yourself a budget that is, uh, you know, very constrained and you're working with special effects and you're working with recreating zombies. It's a far cry from doing a low budget film that's just walk and talk. I mean, you really have some logistically challenging stuff in the film which looks like it belongs in a movie uh, much, much, with a much, much higher level of uh, budget level and, and production level. So how do, you, how do you kind of cut the corners without cutting the quality on a film? What was the secret to doing that? Oh, I guess uh, every day, you know, was kind of a battlefield. Uh, you never have enough time. Uh, and especially, like you said, when you try to do some of these action set pieces, they, they take forever. They just really... Uh, because it is, you have to make all the puzzle pieces that will then in editing connect. And it's just uh, those different setups, they call it, where you move the camera from one side of the room to the other side of the room, and then you have to relight because we're shooting very traditionally. Uh, that just um, takes a long time. Even if you shoot a shot, counter shot of two people talking uh, in a restaurant, you know, you shoot one side, you might shoot different sizes of that side, and then you're like, okay, everybody turning around, and then the director of photography you know, turns to you and says, that's going to be an hour relight or a 45-minute relight. And, and that means everyone is working. All the, you know, the we had a crew of, I think, 35. Everyone's doing something, and the, the day is continuing, but you're not actually capturing anything uh, on film. Uh, so it's, 
you do get man the the day gets eaten up very quickly so um i had shot lists i i tried to prepare as much as possible uh and then i would often throw out those shot lists and be like, okay i can't get these 15 shots uh, we're running out of time i can get these eight you know so you end up kind of um you try and maintain the same flavor of a set piece, but you try and do a very, you end up doing a very simple version often. It's, it's rare that I wake up one morning and like, this is what I'm thinking. And this is what I'm going to, this is what I end up getting at the end of the day. It's, it's, I, you have to compromise along the way, but what you do is you hopefully, I find that if I make my plan very ambitious, I can at least come in somewhere kind of good. Well, so. that's uh, that's smart. Uh, how about the extras, the people who played the zombies? I, I've heard from people who've done that in films in the past and who've worked on uh, on various television zombie series that that's actually the most enjoyable part of the job because it's acting like a zombie. There's no one who's telling that you – no one ever says tone it down. Everybody always says just more, <laughs> bigger, crazier. Uh, well, well, how, how did they enjoy working on the film? Uh, <laughs> They loved it, which I really was telling my wife I don't understand because, and maybe you agree with me, but I, waking up, waking up, dressing in ratty clothes and putting a bunch of blood, sticky blood on my face, and standing around uh, most of the day just to kind of uh, you know walk oddly or grunt, you know, like to make odd noises for a very small portion of the day sounds terrible to me, but um, we often had more zombies than than we required, and they. We're really enjoying it. Uh, the extras really seem to like it. Well, so I was always so pleased that they did, but I didn't fully understand. It. Well, that that seems to be a uh, a common theme. I've I've heard that from just about everyone who's ever been an extra and playing a zombie. So it's uh, it sounds like one of the best best <laughs> gigs that you can get. And yes. and and uh, <laughs> since the film, you you now you have just finished another film, correct? Yeah, yeah, I've got this thing called The Witch Files that uh, I'm very close to finishing editing. Again, I went back to Maine and I shot this thing around the same budget, uh, about five uh, young women in high school that uh, form a witch coven and kind of get in over their heads. So. And and uh, that will be finished probably sometime end of the year, early year? Yeah, I'm thinking uh, I may even be finished uh, by November by the time the American film market happens. I'm not sure. Um but I'm going for it. All right. Well, terrific. Yeah. Well, Kyle, we wish you all the best, and uh, I, we're we're certainly going to encourage people to check out Night of the Living Dead on uh, on Blu-ray in particular because I, I think it's uh, I just think it's one of the best uh, zombie comedies we've seen. I and you know there was one that we commented on I think it was last year called Zombievers, which I just uh, is is unwatchable. So um, <laughs> I will direct everyone to Night of the Living Dead from here on out. So thanks so much for talking with us. Kyle's uh, big breakthrough, of course, was uh, as one of the Project Greenlight guys. He, was, uh, uh, he did Battle of Shaker Heights. Uh, Shia LaBeouf. Yep. Uh, Kevin yep. Pollack uh, yeah. on, that, on the Project Greenlight. Ben yeah. Affleck and all that. Yeah. I think they canceled that series finally. Did the, the second incarnation of it finally canceled? Well, they've destroyed several careers. <laughs> I think they've destroyed they just, they just destroyed. Too bad. Is there, there are ways of making that work. Well, but, you know the uh, problem with Project Greenlight? Project Greenlight was never, ever, ever, I don't care. Look, I can't prove this. This is this is yeah. Tim's gut speaking as a person who's been watching and talking about films for 25 years like you. Yeah. I watch Project Greenlight, and the one thing I know is that that program is never about the movies being made by the filmmakers or artists. No. There. That program is always about 
that program. Yeah. It's about good reality television. Yeah. What if Project Green Green Life had sincerely been simply about filmmaking and filmmakers, and mm -hmm. it was just sort of like a, a, a almost a verite sort of documentary series, right? Yeah. And and not not a con no contest involved. None of that. We're simply going to watch this process. It would have been a really striking thing to see. But no, they decided to make a TV show instead. Well, we're going to uh, wind out on some uh, classic films and wrap the show out this week. Uh, first one is a great Criterion release. The long-awaited Night Train to Munich uh, on Blu-ray. It's been out on DVD before, but Night Train to Munich, a classic from 1940 Carol by Reed. Carol Reed. Yeah. Uh, very much in the same vein as The Third Man which is the, the, the Carol Reed noir that everybody always focuses on. But Night Train to Munich is very much in the, in the same vein. Features an amazing performance by uh, Rex Harrison and uh, Margaret Lockwood, also really, really good. Paul uh, Henry in that it's movie. Just, it's just so, so good. It, uh, it, it has a, a certain, uh, like an early Hitchcock vibe to it. The, you know, the thriller stuff, the spy stuff. Um, very, very, very slick, beautifully photographed, really, really cool. Uh, and it, it's just, it's, uh, it's one of the, I mean, it just moves like gangbusters, this thing does. Um, really, really interesting uh, screenplay in particular, which you learn about a lot about in the, uh, one of the extras, which is a 2010 conversation uh, between a pair of film scholars talking about Carol Reed as well as the screenwriters of the film, Frank Lounder and Sidney Gilliatt. And uh, that stuff is really, really very interesting. Uh, so this is just this easily the one of the best films of this week or possibly even the year. And uh, then we have a bunch of stuff from Twilight Time. This month's Twilight Time releases are pretty great. Uh, they, I mean, they're always great. But you go to twilighttimemovies.com uh, and, uh, you know grab these suckers because they're just really, really good. Uh, all of them licensed, of course, from Studio Vaults and deservedly so. Frank Sinatra, uh, Tony Rome and Lady in Cement uh, is a double feature that is uh, just amazing. Isolated score tracks on here, audio commentary on Tony Rome with a, a whole bunch of film historians that'll just give you amazing perspective. Beautiful cinematography in both of these. Uh, the, uh, both of these are um, directed by Gordon Douglas and they're based on the Marvin Albert um, Tony Rome novels. And the movies came out in the late 1960s. And uh, it's basically about a cop who becomes a private investigator. And they've got that really cool late 60s kind of semi-noir, hard-boiled yeah, quality semi -noir, to Yeah, semi-noir, not quite not noir. Not quite noir. It's yeah. like semi-noir. Really, really good stuff. And aging Sinatra, just really being hard-boiled. Terrific stuff. Uh, Theater of Blood. With uh, Vincent Price is uh, an awful lot of fun. This is exactly as Vincent Pricey as you would expect it to be. And uh, this is from 1973, kind of on the, uh, not right after he had done a lot of the Corman stuff. But uh, it's, it's still an awful lot of fun. And it's just, you know, it's Vincent Price being crazy and weird and macabre. Uh, the Glory Guys is a Western that it, it kind of has fallen between the cracks a little bit, but a really terrific cast here. Uh, it's kind of a, it's sort of a run-of-the-mill cavalry film. You know, they all, that's really a genre unto itself, but it has great cinematography by James Wong Howe. Uh, one oh, of the really? Great, yeah, fabulous. Uh, and uh, screenplay by Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. Know? So, uh, really, uh, pretty, uh, pretty interesting film, kind of that's, Fawn a little bit between the cracks. Yeah, I don't know that film. Yeah, it's uh, directed by Arnold Laban, not really a significant director, but the Peckinpah screenplay very much uh, shows through. This also has an audio commentary with uh, many of the, with Nick Redman, who's one of the principals at Twilight uh, Time. 
and a couple other film scholars, and a great cast that includes James Caan, Andrew Duggan, Slim Pickens, uh, and Peter Breck. Peter Breck from the Big Valley, yeah. you know, who, uh, of course, was a kind of a Western fixture. Uh, some of the other uh, films here, then, we have uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. I love that. Which movie. has a really great cult following. Uh, Warren Oates, just so amazing uh, in this. This is a straight-up Sam Peckinpah movie that he did direct. Uh, and um, it's great. Uh, you know, it was just, just one of those... It's a peck and paw film. I don't know what else to tell w- you. Warren Oates is one of those wonderful character actors, character actor face, yep. who had leading man chops yes. that we've sort of lost to history a little bit. He, yeah. he lives in that world with Lee Marvin and, yes. and, and a few of those guys. Really fantastic. And then uh, the last two here from Twilight Time, uh, Damiano Damiani's The Most Beautiful Wife, otherwise known as La Mogli Piobella from 1970, which stars a 14-year-old Ornella Muti, who would, of course, later show up in the Flash Gordon movie as Princess Ardala. Yeah. Ornella Muti, one of the great Italian beauties of the, of the day. Anyway, this is uh, basically uh, about a, a young woman who goes toe-to-toe with uh, the mafia in Sicily. Also an amazing isolated Ennio Morricone score. Really good stuff. And then the last uh, Twilight Time title this week is a classic from 1979, right in that uh, sweet spot when Paul Schrader was making really gritty stuff, mm-hmm. writing and directing, you know, from Scorsese's Taxi Driver, everything else. It's hardcore. George C. Scott looking for his daughter, played by Susan Hubley, uh, who has vanished from the, the sweet uh, paradise of the Midwest to the inferno of the... Uh, West Coast porn scene. Uh, this just it's a gritty film. Jack scenes Me- in that film. Scenes oh. in that film that you could not make today. Could not make could today. Could not do today. Uh, beautifully shot by Michael Chapman, who of course would go on to win an Oscar for Raging Bull, and uh, music by Jack Nietzsche, who of course would go on to do a great, uh, memorable score for many, many movies, including Officer and a Gentleman. Mm. Uh, really, just a terrific film. All, uh, they, they got Paul Schrader for an audio commentary. Uh, they also have a, a bunch of uh, film historians doing an audio commentary and the isolated score for Jack Nature. Really just a, a terrific movie. Um, really hard to watch, though. I was completely in love with Susan Hubley for like a decade, oh, from yeah. like 1970. Yep. On. I, got, I got a couple here we're going to finish up with, including Iron Giant. Iron Giant, Brad Bird's film. Which, uh, which, by the way, has a special Ultimate Collector's Edition that they have not yet sent us, which has all, uh, different versions of the film on it. Uh, and a lot of other fun stuff, but this is uh, is certainly uh, certainly worth a, a quick mention. This is the signature edition, uh, which has uh, the Giant's Dream on it. Finally, this thing's on Blu-ray. I yeah, mean, that's Bla- the- you know, look, Brad Bird, uh, his best film, if you ask me, his live action work, notwithstanding. What people forget, people always remember Ving Rhames, you know, the, the, yeah. the voice of the Giant. People forget uh, Jennifer Anderson, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, and, a, and a number of other noted Vin actors. Diesel. Vin Diesel's in the film. Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman doing a voice in this film. So this is kind of like a star-studded cast of Amazing. voices, of which Vin Diesel was not, I think, maybe Saving Private Ryan yeah. uh, had been his big thing uh, up to that point. That's Boiler Room. Yeah, that's right. Boiler, Boiler Room. room. He had done Boiler Room after that, yeah. too. But yeah, Iron Giant, so fantastic. And thing. The Giant's Dream is the uh, documentary on here that is just absolutely wonderful, which tells the, the sort of the phoenix from the ashes story of how this movie became a cult classic even after not really finding an audience in the yeah, box office. Yeah, it failed office. the first time out. Had to Just be absolutely terrific. So uh, really, really great stuff. Uh, and then the last one that I have over here anyway is the collector's edition of Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse, 1989. <laughs> it's so great. This is now a classic. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I love this movie. It, it was one of the first films that I worked on when we came to L.A., this yeah. movie, right? The thing that I really love about this movie, though, uh, Patrick Swayze, uh, Swayze uh, plays a bouncer in a sub-roadhouse bar. Uh, 
you know, he knows Kung Fu and Karate and all kinds of stuff. But he's a philosophy major. He has a degree in philosophy. And, and he really believes in being a nice guy. And it's a sexy movie and it has all the kind of stuff. But this is the last movie I can think of that had a hero, a central sort of hero figure who was willing to you know, kick a little ass when he had to kick ass, but who was actually a hero, not an anti-hero. Patrick Swayze doesn't have a mean bone yeah. in his body in this movie. Yeah. But if you make him, he'll break all yours. Uh, but that's your fault. You did that. <laughs> he, he didn't want to do it. Anyway, uh, this is full of all kinds of stuff. Two disc set, interviews uh, with several people, including his, his wife, uh, the late Patrick Swayze, of course, who lost Patrick a few years ago. Uh, audio commentary with director Rowdy Harrington uh, and uh, uh, Kevin Smith and a few other sort of uh, sink fans of this kind of stuff, which uh, you know, could have included me. This is from uh, Shout <laughs> Select. Uh, Roadhouse, Patrick Swayze. Well, that's it, uh, Tim. I think we're gonna we're probably gonna have you next week as well, and then uh, see if Mark has his health back uh, after that. So, uh, with that, thank you everybody for being with us. We'll see you next time. See you soon.